Thank you for listening to Sage Talk with Reverend Jack. If you'd like more information about the work that's done by Elder Pride Incorporated, please visit us at www.elderprideforme.org. That's elderpride4me.org. Elder Pride Incorporated is a CSL-focused ministry. Reverend Jack Elliott serves as our spiritual leader and founder. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Reverend Jack Elliott. Welcome to Sage Talk with Reverend Jack. You know, today's talk is called When Legacy Collides with Vision. And I I picked this topic today because as many of us here at Elder Pride enter what some young would call the autumn of our life, others would call the final third of our life, but that period of time when we are committed to aging forward with grace and ease, we have the opportunity to really look at legacy. You know, one of the things that legacy brings to us is that epitaph, if you will, of what they will say about us when our work here on earth is done. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about because my intention for my life when it is all done, that the only two words that people will be able to say is well done. That you actually had a vision. You executed that vision. You knew what you were supposed to be. You did what you were supposed to do. And you have manifested the results that made the world a better place for other people. That's the goal with legacy. And so one of the things that I think is so important to realize that sometimes legacy collides with the vision that we have for our life. And I want to talk a little bit about my journey so that you fully understand this and maybe at the end of the day, let yourself off the hook for your life not turning out the way your ego envisioned that it should have turned out. Most importantly, we really want to talk about this thing called love and the people that we loved and the people that we were attracted to and see those relationships not as failed relationships, but forks in the road or bridge from place A to place B, or the hand at our back that would propel us in our next yet great to be. So that's the journey that I want us to go on in today's talk. So I hope you are in a quiet place where you can pay attention to the words that are said so that they might speak to you in a way that you've never heard them before. You may have to listen to this talk two or three times to really understand how it resonates with you in your life. That's okay. But here's what I want you to know. At the end of the day, it's not about how your life looks. It is how your life was experienced experienced and how you affected 
the experience and the energetic of those around you. You know, love. Ah, love. My life, especially in the early days, was a rom-com that could play out on any LGBTQ Lifetime movie channel. You know, I saw Doris Day and Rock Hudson, and I could absolutely see what Doris Day saw in Rock Hudson. I didn't know what to do, but I just knew that I wanted to be in the presence of that handsome man. And so in my imagination, in my life, I played out that romance. And I was in love. My first love in life was the most perfect first love in life. I fell in love with the manager of the wrestling team, the tackle on the football team, the straightest man in all of high school. But you know what? He adored me. We were best friends. And so from the moment we could drive, we had our Sunday dates. And for three years in our high school experience, every Sunday afternoon to Sunday night was our time. And it was the most romantic time. It was the most loving time. It was the best time to human beings could have on the planet together. The talks were deep. The laughter was loud. The companionship was intense. And the love for one another unquestioned. Yes, we made love. It was probably as stupid lovemaking as any teenager makes. But for us, it worked. And then it was time to graduate. I had planned to go off to college. He had planned to go into the military. An odd trajectory, but I was worldly. I was willing to be the one who supported him in his call to go into the military. And so he went away basic training. And I went away to my first semester at Indiana State University. Now, the letters, oh, if I would have only kept those love letters. You know, I have a few postcards here and there from his basic training. And, you know, we had a little clandestine way that we would talk to one another to really share what was the affection but to also be appropriate to know that our emails, and not emails, but our mails, was being read by other people. And we longed for that, that first time he would get R&R &R and would be able to come home and visit me on the campus and have that time together. And, and if you can imagine, it, it had to be quite clandestine because his parents were very much looking forward to him coming home from basic training for that first period of time. And so for him to fly in to Indianapolis and decide to 
come over to Terre Haute, Indiana, where I was going to college, as opposed to going exactly the same amount of miles to the other way, to Randolph County, Indiana, to be on the family farm was a little risk-taking for him. But we did it. And we had, I, you know, a wonderful weekend. We showed him all the sights of the campus, and we did, you know, a football game, and we did, you know, a little bit of theater because I was in the arts at that time. And it came time on the Sunday evening for him to go home to Randolph County. And I was all prepared to tell him that I had come up with this master plan that as soon as I was finished with college, I would come back to Randolph County and teach. And that we could live on the family farm together. And he looked at me and said no. In fact, we had our goodwill hunting moment at the end of the movie when the Ben Affleck character tells the Matt Damon character he's got to leave and he's got to go on. That was the very same conversation that Dwayne had with me that day. He said, you have a bigger calling. And that calling cannot be fulfilled on a farm outside of Saratoga, Indiana. We won't see one another again. This is where we part ways. I just needed to know that you were on good footing for your future. So he left. And we never saw one another again. But I never doubted for a moment that I was loved and there was something bigger going on in my life. That the universe, some would call it God, had a plan for Jack Elliott and he needed to be about moving forward, even though he didn't know what that plan would be. So I put my nose down I paid attention in college. I studied broadcasting. I studied theater. I studied everything I needed, even though I didn't realize that I needed it, to prepare me for this journey that was going to be the legacy of my life. And of course, as life would have it, we fall in love again. We may think for that several months after that one goes away that we'll never love this way again. And we actually throw the back of our hand against our forehead and really proclaim that that was it. That was the one great love. And then the universe does what the universe does and brings somebody else dancing in front of us to catch our eye. And that happened for me on New Year's Eve, 1977. I was alone, I was single, but I was out and about ready to mingle. I went to the hunt, the discotheque of our day in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I had decided that the best way not to let the world know that I was alone when the clock struck midnight from 1977 to 1978, was to be on the stairway between the two floors so nobody would see me by myself. 
So I executed my plan. I came down the stairway and realized that I was about 15 seconds or two early. And as I hit the bottom of the steps, it was like, oh no, it's only 11.59 and 30 seconds. What have I done? And I looked up and I saw John Belka standing there. Now John was a dark-haired, brown-eyed, good-looking man that I had gone to college with. He was a year older than I, but he was, mm-mm-mm, what can I say? And someone that I would have perceived was not in my league. But as soon as I made that step on that floor, John hollers from across the room, Jack, how good to see you. Now, I knew John was in a relationship with somebody else, or at least that was the history that I knew. And so I was surprised to see him, but I was looking over his shoulder for his partner at the time. And as we get closer and closer, I hear the DJ going, 10, 9, 8. And I'm going, oh no, oh no, what am I going to do? And as soon as the clock struck midnight, he reached out, put his hand on the back of my head, pulled him in for a kiss that I will remember for the rest of my life. And I heard myself say, my life just changed. And it did. For the next six months, we courted and had a wonderful time together. God, he was smart. He was worldly. He saw the world from a different point of view. He would be out there to this day rallying with Bernie Sanders and how he saw the world and his progressive liberalism and his activism of how the world should be. He opened me up to that whole idea of looking at how the world got to be the way that it is. And more importantly, for me to decide what is mine to do in that world, to affect the change that I was called to affect. Now, John was home on break that New Year's Eve from his freshman year at San Francisco State University. So all he could talk about was how he could not wait to get back the next fall to resume his studies at San Francisco State University. Now he had taken some time off to care for an ailing parent, which allowed our courtship to blossom. But throughout the six months from that January to June, we were in it 100% to win it, to be that couple that could only have a appropriate movie on the LGBTQ Lifetime channel. And throughout our whole courtship, he kept saying, you should see San Francisco. You should see San Francisco. You should experience San Francisco. And so it was getting closer and closer to the time we would have to choose. And he was ready to go back to school. And so we can come up with this idea that he would return for a semester and I would take him out on my two weeks vacation to really kind of see if I could 
live in San Francisco. Well, that sounded awfully romantic to me. So that May, we packed up my 1974 Monte Carlo and we drove to California. Again, a wonderful trip, deep conversations. I even fell more in love and even had made the decision as we were getting closer and closer to California that, oh, I'm coming back. I don't even know what San Francisco is like, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back. I'm going to be with this man. And so I did. I experienced San Francisco. I could hear Tony Bennett singing every morning when I awoken in that vacation. I got to see vistas from the top of Twin Peaks that I could not imagine existed. I got to see what it was like to have coffee in a cafe in North Beach. I got to have a fortune cookie that had been made that morning for the first time in my life. I got to experience a world of diversity that I had only read about in East central Indiana. I was in. And we were walking down Market Street one day and he said, I'm going to do something that we cannot do in Indiana. And I said, what's that? And he turned and right there in front of the Emporium department store, he once again put his hand on the back of my head and pulled me in for a kiss that I will remember for the rest of my life. The audacity to kiss this man right on the corner of Fifth and Market. And nobody noticed. Nobody looked up. Nobody had a grimace on their face. All they saw were two people in love. Well, I was, I was set. My rom-com was down to the final editing at that point. And so I went back to Indiana, sold my stuff, got rid of everything packed my car, gave my two-week notice, found a wingman that wanted to see if he would like to live in California to kind of come out with me. And then I got a phone call. Right in the middle of my going away party where they had cake and ice cream with a cake that said, Bon Voyage, wishing you well, my office phone rings, and so I go in to answer it, and it's John. How are you doing? Are you excited? I am so excited, I cannot tell you. And of course, we had a little business to take care of. I said, now, did you get the cashier's check that I sent you? Because John had found our apartment, and of course, he needed first and last month's rent, and so I dutifully sent it off, because after all, he was in college, and I was the one that was working. And, oh, by the way, I had been sending him care packages for the last couple of three weeks because, you know, I wanted to be the dutiful spouse and do what I did to support my man. And so he assured me that he had gotten the check and then he said, but I have a question for you. 
And I go, what's that? He goes, it's kind of a hypothetical question, but I want to ask the question anyway. He said, are you coming for me or are you coming for you? I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, I've met someone. I've met a delightful doctor from Marin County, and I'm really into this guy, and we're going we're gonna to make it work. And so I just wanted to let you know before you came that if you come out, we can still be friends, but we're probably not going to be together. There was a long silence on the phone. Clearly, this would be a pivotal moment in the Lifetime movie where the star of the movie would have a quivering upper lip wondering what their next move would mean. But I was very clear. And I heard myself say as if it was in an out-of-body experience of, I'll be there. Yes, I'm leaving. And yes, I'm coming for you, for me. I'm coming for me, not for you. He goes, really? Oh, wow. Well, good. But I was really, you know, I, I, I are you sure? You know, because, you know, I wanted to, to be fair, I wanted to be clear. He goes, why? Why would you come knowing that I'm going to be with someone else? And I said, I'm coming because my life depends on it. Now, I didn't know what those words meant. All I knew is there was a force moving through me that said, oh, you've got to get there. You have got to get there. So I get in the car. But before I even get in the car, I walk out of that office and I see my colleagues partying down by the cake and the ice cream. And I turn out the light on my office and I turn and I walk out the door and I get in my car and I drive home and I awaken my wingman buddy that was going to come to California with me and said, we're leaving now. He goes, what do you mean we're leaving now? It's nine o'clock at night. We're going to leave first thing in the morning. No, we're leaving now. Because if I don't go now, I'll never go. So we started our cars and we started driving. And I made a commitment to myself that I would not stop driving until I got to Denver, Colorado. Denver, Colorado was exactly halfway. And I knew that if I could get halfway, I could turn around and go home if I wanted to, or I could continue on to the rest of my life. And that's exactly what I did. I continued on because I knew there was something bigger than me in this. I knew that the universe had a plan for the legacy of my life. Now, the vision of my life my vision for being on that farm in Randolph County, Indiana with Dwayne, mm, that served me to do some stuff, to get to the place, to have some life lessons. I could 
live in the grief and the eddy of what could have been but didn't happen. Or I could see that experience as something that propelled me for something next. The day that I arrived in California was a very quiet Saturday in June. So I checked into my hotel and I collapsed and I had arrived. And the next morning was a Sunday morning and I was awakened to a marching band and sounds that I had never heard of before. And like, what the, what is going on? And so I came down from my hotel and I took the two block walk up to Market Street. And it was Gay Pride Sunday of 1978. There were hundreds of thousands of other people like me on the street. I had no idea. I had entered the LGBTQ Disneyland, Disney World, and Epcot all poured into one. And I heard this voice say, this is why you're here. This is your sanctuary. This is where the journey to your legacy begins. So I was thankful. I was thankful for John Belkus who stood me up at the altar, so to speak. I was thankful for Dwayne who had the courage to see a bigger picture for my life than the one that I could see for myself. Because I understood that the universe had conspired to get me to a place where I was called to do my work. Now, I listen to so many people today, men of my generation, whose stories stopped back in the early 80s, the late 70s, a couple even in the late 60s, where they never could transmute that first love experience into something that propelled them forward. I want the work of Elder Pride to remind you that your best is yet to come no matter what. You got this. You have a legacy to fulfill. It may not look at all like the vision that you have for your life, and that's okay. That's okay. Because just as you heard my talk today, just as you heard this story, what I want you to know is sometimes the vision that we have is so colored in by our ego, so colored in by the impressions of the tribes that we want to be a part of, so colored in by our family's expectations that we have to sometimes get away from that. You know, I remember watching this young man early on in my days in San Francisco come into a hotel room where there was a grand piano in the lobby. And 
though we had been friends for months, I never knew that he played and he walked over and he started playing this beautiful, beautiful classic music piece. Not a sheet of music, just came right to him. And I said, okay, why aren't you doing that? You're a banker. And he looked at me and he said, that's not the family business. My family is bankers. And when I was a little boy and I would sit down and play at the piano, my father would come and slam the lid of the piano onto my fingers and said, I will break your fingers if you continue to play this piano because you will be a banker. And I got to see in that moment that despite our dreams, they cannot really be broken. They can only be suppressed. He was able to finally move on in life to where he had the opportunity to have a balanced life where he could be a consultant to companies, to be a CFO, to help them go public in the stock market. But once he was done, he would take a year off and play the piano. He found the balance. So I'm inviting you to find the balance in your life to get in touch really quickly and right now to understand that the universe is showing you something. The universe is planting a seed within you of what is yours to do. And we're all called to do something. Nobody gets to ride this bus called life with a free ticket. We are all called to take the next step. Honor the vision that comes to you. It's leading you somewhere, but don't be invested in it. Be willing to have that vision shift. Be willing to see it another way. Be willing to let go of expectations. Be willing to let go of the judgments of others of how it should be. Be willing to let go of those mistakes you thought you made. They were merely lessons not mistakes. Transform your life right here, right now. You have a legacy to fulfill. You have an opportunity to do it if you hear my voice right now. Get involved. I care less about what you believe that I just want to know at the end of the day that you believe in something and you're passionate about it. I just want to know that you are moving through life with an intention to leave the world a better place than you found it. That is your calling. To find out what it is that is yours to do to create a world that works for everyone. So I leave you with this thought today. There are no mistakes. You have done nothing wrong. Yes, you made a few errors along the way. But if you use a sports metaphor, there are more missed baskets than there are the made baskets. There are more missed baskets than there are made baskets but that does not negate the value 
of the time that the ball goes through the basket. And that's what you're up to in your life. Take your shot. Give it your best. Now, go have a blessed day. You got this. Hi, this is Reverend Jack. Welcome to today's program. You know, today's program is sponsored by Elder Pride 2020, our gathering and conference, which will be held in Oakland, California, February 13th through the 16th. Don't miss Elder Pride 2020. We've got six dynamic workshops, 24 Sage Talk speakers like the one that you're about to hear today, and much, much more. Come out, join Bobby Rivers, Adam Sank, and so many others as we celebrate all that it is to be LGBTQ in today's world. Join us at Elder Pride 2020.